And before I say a word, before I say anything, I would very, very much like to uh, recognize and celebrate just for a minute here, just for a second, that today, July the 18th, eight years ago uh, in 2012, was the first day of a vision for you. And so today is the eighth anniversary. We're going to be selling that, celebrating that anniversary, not selling it, but celebrating it tomorrow morning on our special Sunday special edition. So uh, today is eight years that Vision for You has been around and it has helped countless people recover from compulsive overeating. And it is a healthy OA meeting. It is not separate from OA. It is a part of OA. It is not separate from, but I believe that Vision for You, a Vision for You, because of its phone or now Zoom, we're not on Zoom on, on Vision, but because of Zoom and because of the phone, we're reaching an enormous amount of people that previously couldn't get to meetings or you know what have you. Maybe they live in small towns or remote places. And one of the things that A Vision For You has done is it has made recovery accessible to anyone who wants it badly enough to dial into the meeting. So just a moment of thank you to the people who made A Vision For You possible and for the people such as yourself that have participated. I'm, I'm not one of those people, but for the people also that have participated on the line over these eight years, that you are all a piece of the tapestry of what makes a vision for you so wonderfully miraculous and special. So thank you to all of you as well. You're all part of those, part of that tapestry. So thank you so much. We have been studying, and we're at the tail end of the chapter, there is a solution. There is a solution, meaning that there's a way out, that there is a way for a person like me who was hopeless, a person like me who was broken, a person who has been defeated by a disease, by an illness that I didn't know was an illness, that I didn't understand was an illness, and that I, I didn't choose it, I didn't cause it, I can't control it, and I can't cure it. And God reached out to me through Overeaters Anonymous, and I did not come here to find God, but I did. I did not come here to find anything other than to get people off my back who I owed money to, to be very honest with you. When I came here and they started up with all these things, I didn't understand what was going on at all. It took me quite a while before some of this stuff started penetrating my thick head. But eventually, by and by, I came to understand that this is a solution. And it is a miraculous, wonderful solution. And it is not only a solution to the eating problem, but I found that in my case, that as my life started to uh, gain momentum in recovery, that there were other areas of my life that started to resurrect, that started to reconstruct. And as the disease vandalized, putrefied, demolished, and and, and set fire to so many areas of my life, 
the recovery that I found here started to reconstruct my life in a way that is more miraculous and more wonderful than anything I ever could have imagined. And so I'm very grateful to that end to the program. And the fact that there is a solution really makes my life a lot easier. I'm a person who by my nature, I'm rather indecisive. It becomes difficult for me to make a decision. I want to look over at your paper or I want to look over at what you're doing. And if you're doing it, perhaps that's the best thing for me. What was very difficult for me in the disease is to get in touch with my true feelings, to get in touch with what I wanted, to get in touch with what I was thinking because I was afraid of what I was thinking. If I thought red, blue, green, then green, blue, orange certainly had to be better because I never trusted myself. And Dr. Silkworth talks about this in the doctor's opinion that we lose self-confidence. How was I not gonna lose self-confidence when everything I did to stand in the way of the, of the tank that was this disease had failed? As we go through the chapter, we also remember that there is a fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous that is quite vital, that it is possible but more difficult to recover by myself. And so for me, I need and I desire very strongly people who understand and speak that language of the heart, which is so important. Because during my childhood and during my life in the disease, I found that my thinking was that the way I thought about food and the way I experienced life were secret and unique unto me. And what I found very definitely was they are not. They are definitely not. Um, and if I look at the way you eat or I look at the way you think, just as we had in Bill's story, when we went through Bill's story, before we started Bill's story, and then at various intervals of Bill's story, I tried to remind everybody that this is about identification. Can I, do I think the way Bill thinks? Do I eat the way Bill drinks? And we look at the progressive nature of the, of the illness. We look at the permanent nature of the illness, and we also look at the fatal nature. And we're going to take a look at those things in greater detail when we get to chapter three, more about alcoholism. And then in chapter two, we find that the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. That the mind is what we're going to be working on as we move through these steps. That the body is kind of left out after step one. We assume after step one that you are no longer ingesting your alcoholic foods. If that's not the case, then we're going to have a problem. If you're continuing to ingest, somebody's unmuted. If you're going to continue to ingest your alcoholic foods and, you, and, and you know, you're not vigilant to that, there's going to be a problem. There's definitely, definitely going to be a problem there for sure. And we also see in chapter two, uh, there is a solution. As we looked at, the only thing that is going to help us, and this is something that we're going to 
drive home is a spiritual awakening. There is no earthly explanation as to why I have the disease of compulsive overeating, and there's no earthly solution as to any, there's no remedy that is of this earth. There's absolutely no remedy that is of this earth. And we also talked about something that I also want to reiterate. We talked about this in great length a week ago, and that is the built-in forgetter, the built-in forgetter is called the mental blank spot. And what the mental blank spot does is it aids and abets the mental twist. The mental twist is activated by the, by the buildup of human emotions. And Dr. Silkworth says that when we're not eating, we're restless, irritable, and discontent. Throw in for me, scared to death, angry as get out, uh, jealous, and it could be happiness, it could be anything. And in the book, it says lack of power was our dilemma. And how that applies is lack of power. I do not have the ability to fix my broken brain with a broken brain. In other words, I cannot feel fear, for example, or jealousy or, or resentment and, and combat that on my own. I have to have God's help. Lord knows I've tried to combat these things through earthly methods, like eating more food, which, you know, or, or whatever, or being mean to people or whatever it is that I'm doing at the time. And what I need to remember is that this mental blank spot, this built-in forgetter, is a very serious mechanism of the illness, and it will cause me much grief unless I keep in mind that I must constantly work the steps, I must constantly bring this message to other people. And remember always that the mental blank spot really only affects me where it comes to food. I cannot recall what the food does to me. I can only recall what the food does for me because the mental blank spot will obliterate from my consciousness any, rem any uh, memory of the horrible, horrible sickness, the diarrhea, the sour, sour stomach, the inability to function, the inability to look good, being emasculated by this disease, emasculated physically, emasculated emotionally. It, it, it causes me to forget the isolation that I lived in. It causes me to forget the horrible, horrible life that I had in this disease. And it only allows me to focus in on how wonderful this cake is going to taste, how wonderful this cookie is going to taste, whatever that may be. And the mental blank spot will not allow normal functioning of the mind. It just doesn't allow it when it comes to food. When it comes to other things, I don't, when I'm late for an appointment, I don't drive my car a hundred miles an hour down the road. I don't, I don't do that because I fear the consequences. I don't want to be um, ticketed by the police. I don't want to hurt somebody. I don't want to hurt myself. I don't want to suffer the economic anguish of the ticket and the accident and the trouble with the insurance company. So if I'm late for an appointment, I just, all right, I'm late and I'll deal with it. 
but I don't drive my car 100 miles an hour down the street. And when it comes to eating food, I just can't recall any of these consequences at all. And then the food goes in the mouth, and for about nine seconds, I feel fantastic. But then about 10 seconds in, I feel horrible. But by then, I have triggered the physical allergy. And in triggering the physical allergy, I have placed myself in a position where I will be unable to stop eating just because I want to now. The allergy will set me up with a craving beyond my control, and I will always eat more than I had originally intended. So these are some, but not all of the highlights of chapter two, there is a solution. And what we want to remind ourselves of again and again and again, that this chapter, although it will hit on step two material, it is primarily about the first step, the powerless condition of mind and body. I'm, I, we come to believe, we admit it, sorry, I'm, I'm mashing up steps one and two. We admit we are powerless over food. We admitted we were powerless over food and our lives had become unmanageable. And that powerless condition is twofold in nature, the physical allergy and the twist of the mind, and the twist of the mind being activated by the buildup of human emotion. We can be bored, angry, happy, tired. We can be scared to death, jealous. And the solution that the mind will come up with is to eat the food. And when I'm in fit spiritual condition and the steps have lowered the level of these emotions and food is no longer a solution because I already feel better, then the urge to eat is simply not there. Now that's a very simplistic uh, explanation, very highly simplistic of, of, a, of a deeper seated uh, problem, but you'll find that that explanation does bear fruit because it does explain what's going on. And again and again and again, I want to repeat that we do not solve this problem by absorbing uh, spiritual information. We, we get recovery by transmitting spiritual information. Again, I'm going to repeat that because it's very, very important. I will not gain recovery by absorbing spiritual information. I will get recovery by transmitting spiritual information to the still sick and suffering. Let's go to the top of page 28, and if we can, we're going to finish this chapter today, and then we're going to start on chapter 3, more about alcoholism. We're at the very top of 28 in the fourth edition. Here was the terrible dilemma in which our friend found himself when he had the extraordinary experience, which as we've already told you, made him a free man. And who are we talking about? If you remember last week, we're talking about Roland Hazard. And Roland is visiting Dr. Jung, Carl Jung, in Switzerland. And in Switzerland, Jung psychoanalyzed Roland and Roland left and was starting to go back to America. And he went to Paris, saw a couple of friends of his parents, and got drunk again. And Jung takes Roland back and says to him, my boy, I have, I have 
psychoanalyze you for a year, but I have done you no, I have done you a disservice. I've misdiagnosed you. You are an alcoholic, and as such, you're going to die. And remember we said last week that is it odd or is it God that Roland got to Jung rather than Freud or Adler? Because Freud and Adler believed that all solution lie within the mind. And Freud broke rank with them in one area and one area only. And that area was he believed that here and there, there were uh, spiritual experiences that could alter a person's attitudes, ideas, beliefs, and behaviors. And so he sent Roland on a quest to get a spiritual experience. Roland will go into the Oxford group and the rest is history. You can consult last week's session if you want to. But we're, gonna, we're talking about Roland. It says here on the top of 28, we in our turn sought the same escape with all the desperation of drowning men. Now this is a very important line and it is a very important warning and it is a very important idea. If you are drowning, if you are in water a little too long, obviously I'm gonna assume that none of us have drowned, but if you are in water a bit too long and you really need that next breath of air, you are not gonna care whether they, they throw you the white uh, life preserver, the orange life preserver, the green one, or the red one. No one's going to care what color the life preserver is. You're going to see the life preserver, and you're going to grab it as if your life depended upon it, because it does. You are going to seek that next breath of air with everything that is in you. It is not going to occur to you of what you look like or what, you're, what bathing suit you're wearing or what day of the week it is. None of those things are going to occur to you. You're gonna have the urgency and the importance of taking that next breath like nothing, has, nothing could be possibly be more important. And this is the idea that we have to approach recovery. For if we approach recovery from a different posture, we're probably in trouble. And what you see so much of today are people that have a more blasé attitude about it. When I have a blasé attitude about my recovery, it's not going to happen. I must take the bull by the horns and control the things I can control and forget about the things I can't control. What can I control today? What I can control today is my attitude about recovery. And what I can control today is how hard I work toward that goal. And if I work very hard toward that goal of recovery, if I work very hard at it and I take it very seriously, I'll get much better results than if I don't. Recovery is not something that some people are fortunate enough to achieve and others are not fortunate enough to achieve. Recovery is something that when taken seriously and worked at diligently will occur. Nobody that I've ever seen, and we're going to get a lot more into this when we get to chapter five, nobody I've ever seen that thoroughly followed our path ever failed. I've never seen anyone that couldn't recover. I've seen some people that didn't want to. I've seen lots and lots and lots and lots of people who didn't really work at it. 
but I've never seen a person yet who worked at recovery and took it seriously. I've never seen that person fail. So this is very important. And it's, 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 it's a warning and it's good information that we have to seek the same escape with all the desperation of drowning men. What seemed at first a flimsy reed has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. Now let's take a look at that for just a minute. When you come into Overeaters Anonymous, at least I, this is my experience. I came into Overeaters Anonymous and what happened was this mountain of dreck, this mountain of garbage was dropped on me and the mountain said food and weight, food and weight. And for the first years that I was here in OA, when the scale went down, I'm not anorexic or bulimic. When the scale went down, that meant I was getting a good grade on my report card. I was doing good. That was my report card, if you will, my course book, if you will. When the scale didn't go down, I wasn't doing so good. And then what started happening was I started losing a lot of weight. Then I had 29 hours of plastic surgery. Things started happening in my life. I'm giving you a very long period of time and I'm truncating, I'm shortening it for you. But here's what happened to me. And what seemed to be a flimsy read proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. This is what happened to me. And I just mentioned it. I just mentioned it. As, as the food and weight mountain of garbage started to get chipped away, I started noticing that through an emancipation from codependency, through an emancipation from my alanonic tendencies, through an emancipation of my fear that you're going to abandon me or that you're going to not like me, through my emancipation, through the, the working of the steps, I started becoming little by little by little by little the person that God intended me to be all along. A person that can speak his mind a person that knows what he wants. Now, I may not get what I want, but I know what I want, and I don't have to ask you what I want. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense, because this was my experience. Perhaps it wasn't yours, I don't know. But this was my experience, that I didn't have the confidence to tell you today's Saturday. I didn't have the self-confidence to tell you that it's July 18th. I didn't have the confidence to answer a question like that because I was scared that you would reject me or you would disagree with me. You can reject me and you can disagree with me and we still don't have to be disagreeable about it. And if you choose not to be in a relationship with me, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. Life will go on. And I started noticing that I was making more money. And I started noticing that life was getting better and better. Now, there are areas of my life today that I wish were different. I wish I had a wife. I wish I had somebody in my life that, you know, romantically, 
I wish I had more money. I wish I had the freedom to retire. Uh, I'm 66 years old. I wish I had a little bit different here and a little bit different there. But it is what it is, and I am, I'm, I'm at where I'm at. And where I'm at today is a place that I'm happy with. So what started out as that flimsy reed has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. And I don't know where I'm going, but this is what I know. Not what I think, not what I suspect. This is what I know. I know that whatever idea I may have, God's ideas are better than mine. I know that whatever idea I may have, and I'm telling God, I want this, and I want her, and I want it, and I want them, and there, and those, God's up there laughing, and hopefully he'll get his way rather than me getting my way. I don't want what I want. I want what God wants me to have, because he's never let me down, and he never will. Let's continue. A new life has been given us, or if you prefer, a design for living that really works. And just what I said before could be reiterated here. A new life has been given us. I had wonderful mentorship in this program. I'm a very lucky man. When I was desperate for recovery and I came in here five, 600 pounds, I was to get to 700 pounds. Uh, I came in at 24 years of age. I only have now 21 years of back-to-back -back abstinence. I've been in the program for 42 years. I have 21 years of, of abstinence. But when I walked to God, he ran to me. And one of the things he did was he gave me, he sent me people who spoke his words to me. One of the things that is most beautiful in my life there was a man, and he's, he was in Chicago. When I was born and raised in Chicago, if you don't know that, then I'm born and raised in Chicago. And he was a guy who told me something, and I never forgot it, and I want to share it with you this morning. He said to me, if everywhere you went today, everything you did today, everything you said today, everything you ate today was on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, are you okay with that? And if you're not okay with it, you've spent a day in the disease. Because a, a, a day in the disease is a day I want kept secret. I don't want you to know what I ate. I don't want you to know where I went. I don't want you to know what's going on in my life. But when I'm in the recovery, my life becomes an open book. And when I lived in that hideous shame, that hideous fear, that hideous disgrace of where I had been and what I had eaten and what I had done and the lies that I told and the bad checks that I wrote. I lied when it was just as easy to tell the truth. I lied. I don't know, even know why half the time. But when I live in that emancipated state, when I live in that emancipated state and I am free of the guilt and the shame and the remorse and the hideous fear that someone saw me at this restaurant or someone saw me coming out of the bakery or someone saw me coming out of the pizza parlor. When I don't have to live that way anymore, I don't have to carry that burden around with me anymore. 
And when he says in, in the book here, a new life has been given us, this is one of the major things. This is one of the major things that I now know was weighing me down and beating me down. It was killing me because people at unexpected times and unexpected places would say to me, hey, I saw your car in front of McDonald's. I saw your car in front of the pizza parlor. I saw your car in, you know, in front of the bakery or whatever it was. And I wanted to die a thousand deaths because I had been caught. I was literally the boy with his hand in the cookie jar and I had been caught and I was ashamed. So when he says a new life has been given us, one of the things that is so beautiful about recovery has nothing to do necessarily with my eating disorder, even though it does, even though they're tied together. What it has to do with is the fact that I live my life today above board, except for when I go in the bathroom, if, if, if everything I did, everywhere I went and everything I said and everything about my life was on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, would I be okay with that? Then of course I would be okay with that because I've done nothing I'm ashamed of. I've said nothing that I'm ashamed of. What does that have to do with my eating disorder? Maybe nothing but everything. Does that make sense? Maybe nothing but everything. I don't do those things. And when I don't live that way, when I don't think that way, I don't eat that way. Isn't that funny how that's all tied in? The distinguished American psychologist, I'm on page 28, second paragraph. William James in his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, indicates a, a multitude of ways in which men have discovered God. And this is the reason that you have the stories in the back of the book. William James at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland in 1901-1902, he gave a series of lectures there and, the, and, and there were people who shared about their experience in finding God. See if this sounds familiar, okay? It's very tough reading, the varieties of religious experience. He is a psychologist writing for psychologists. My friend Larry is a PhD psychologist. Larry Kay, if you listen to Vision, you hear him. He's a PhD psychologist, and he would agree with me that it's very tedious reading. It's, it's very tough reading. But what is the book about the varieties of religious experience? It was one of the most popular books among Oxford group members. And if you remember back in Bill's story, when Ebby comes to see Bill, on the uh, 14th of December, 1934, under his arm, he has tucked a copy that he will give Bill of William James, The Varieties of Religious Experience. What is it? It's a book of, of stories of people, of what they were like, what happened, how they found God, and what they're like now. Does that sound familiar? What they were like, what happened, and in finding God, what are they like now? I hope it sounds familiar because that's exactly what our stories in the back of the book are supposed to illustrate. The stories in the back of the book are meant to be stories that you can identify with. 
in a way that may be different from the way you can identify in the first 164 pages. Maybe, maybe you can identify with this author or that author. And so these stories are very important. We have no desire to convince anyone that there's only one way by which faith can be acquired. If what we have learned and felt and seen means anything at all, it means that all of us, whatever our race, creed, or color, are the children of a living, of a living creator with whom we may form a relationship upon simple and understandable terms as soon as we are willing and honest enough to try. Now let's take a look at how forward thinking the book is. They are repetitive and they are wonderful about putting in that no matter what your race, no matter what your creed, no matter what your color, no matter what your background, no matter what your economic status, you are welcome here. You are welcome here. How forward was that thinking in 1937, 38, and 39? And it is a wonderful, wonderful thing to behold. You know this from listening to me, if you've heard me before, maybe some of you have, maybe some of you haven't, I don't know. But what I really felt for a very long time is that these lines about inclusiveness of race, creed, color, religion, are some of the magic that makes this book come alive for so many. If Fitz Mayo, who we're gonna talk about at the end of chapter four. If Fitz Mayo had had his way, this book would be much more Christian in nature. If Jimmy Burwell had had his way, he would, now they were very good friends, Jimmy Burwell and Fitz Mayo. Fitz Mayo was the third New Yorker to get sober. Number one was Bill, I'm not gonna count Abby. Number one was Bill, number two was Hank Parkhurst, and number three was Fitz Mayo. Fitz Mayo was the son of an Episcopalian minister. And although, as we're going to see when we get to the end of chapter uh, uh, four, he's going to struggle with this idea of God. But by the time the book was in, pro uh, in, you know, in, in the process of getting written, he wanted a much more Christian doctrine. And Jimmy Burwell, his childhood friend, was an atheist. And Jimmy Burwell really power drove this idea of God as you understand God. So if it was a strictly Christian book, then me and many like me and maybe you would have had much more difficulty with it. But it, it seems to be perfect. And you know this from, if you've been around me, you know this. I believe, sorry about that, it's only 100 degrees, so I get, every once in a while, if I don't stop and take a glass, uh, uh, Wasser is, is a Yiddish word for water, Wasser, Glazer le Wasser means a glass of, of water. If I don't stop and take a drink of water once in a while, I, will, I won't be able to talk, trust me. The humidity is about 25% and the temperature is 100, so I, I, always have my, I always have my water close by. Trust me on that one. But anyway, the book is, is, is written in such a way as to be inclusive. Now, I believe, and I don't want to get too sidetracked on this today, I believe that the book is divinely inspired. I believe that God wrote the book. I do not believe that Bill Wilson and the guys in Akron and the guys in New York wrote the book. I do not. 
I believe that is divinely inspired. Bill Wilson had three and a half years of sobriety at the time. Uh, some of these guys had very little sobriety at the time that had input into it. Uh, if you're new, I don't want to scare you. I don't want to discourage you. But if you're new, trust me, when you have five years of sobriety, three and a half years of sobriety doesn't seem like that much. When you get 10 and 20, uh, you don't want people with three and a half years of sobriety walking around unattended on your property. You, you just don't. Uh, but Bill had three and a half years of sobriety, and I believe that the book is divinely inspired. And while we're in this, while we're in this creed, color, race kind of thing, I also want to bring out this fact, of, this fact, and this is my belief also. We have failed as a society, we have failed as a program. Uh, the black community and the Hispanic community for sure, the black community for sure. We have failed a lot of our uh, communities of color. I've done many, many conventions. Uh, I, I recall being in uh, Boston, Mass. for the World Convention four years ago. And I was speaking there uh, and I, I, I happened to be doing a, a lead at the convention. And there were a thousand people at this convention I think the number of people of color, I could count on two hands, two hands. And that would tell me that this is a disease that predominantly affects Caucasians. And that is simply not the case. I've spoken at the OA birthday in Los Angeles. And I don't want to get too sidetracked here. I have spoken at the OA birthday in Los Angeles and I've attended it. And I recommend that you attend it as well. It is a wonderful, wonderful convention. It is it is an outrageously fantastic convention. The OA birthday is not only fun, it is wonderful because the people that run it do such a magnificent job of running it. I mean, you couldn't ask for any more of a top-notch convention than that, that and the uh, vision. But the people that run the birthday are just top drawer, top-notch all the way. And in LA, it's a little bit better, but not much. I've spoken there and you'll maybe get 20 people of color, 25 people of color, and that's about all you're going to get. And that is very sad. Los Angeles is the second largest city in the United States. You need to tell me that in the entire world of OA, we, that's all that we're attracting to these things. That's a Shanda. And a Shanda is a Yiddish word for, it's a shame. It's a Shanda Nacharpa, which means it's a Shanda for the neighbors. And my mother would be pulling the shades down so nobody should see that I got a D in algebra in the second marking period. I got a D in algebra. So she went around and pulled the shades down constantly so that no one should look in the house and that they wouldn't know that I got a D. But anyway, the birthday is magnificent and the, and the, um, the, uh, Newark, the uh, vision, phew, the vision convention is fantastic. But one of the reasons that the birthday is so good and, and the Newark vision conventions are so good is the people that run them not only run a tight ship, but they make sure, and this is a lot of work for them to do, they make sure that the speakers are up, that are up there have chops. What do I mean by that? That means that the speakers at the birthday have recovery. You're going to go to some other conventions in your life where that is not the case. You're going to hear a lot of narishkeit. But at the birthday, 
you go to the sober eating workshop, you come to the big book study, or you go to the opening speaker, closing speaker, luncheon speaker, whatever that may be, or any of the workshops, any of the, any of the uh, workshops, you're going to hear recovery. And that's because the people in charge make sure of it. But getting back to this, God wrote the book. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. Bill's pen was used, yes, his hand, but the book is divinely inspired. Let's move forward. Let me think. Those having religious affiliations will find here nothing disturbing to their beliefs or ceremonies. Try writing a book where Jews are coming, Catholics are coming, Protestants are coming, atheists are coming, Muslims are coming, Buddhists are coming, people of all religions, all backgrounds, and they can all recover. What a miracle, what an absolute miracle. There's no friction among us over such matters. We think it no concern of ours what religious bodies our members identify themselves with as individuals. This should be an entirely personal affair with which each one decides for himself in the light of past associations. So it doesn't matter. You can be an atheist and you can recover. You can be an agnostic. What's the difference? An agnostic, ag means without. Gnostic means knowledge. Without knowledge, they don't know whether there's a God or not. That's an agnostic. An atheist is sure that there is no God. Don't want to make any reference to a religious deity. And the believer believes that there is a God. How do we all recover? Because all that's required is a willingness to believe. Notice it doesn't say you have to believe, but a willingness to believe that there is a power greater than yourself. That's all that's required of you, is willingness to believe that there's something beyond you and me. <clears throat> Not all of us join religious bodies, but most of us favor such memberships. In the following chapter, there appears an explanation of alcoholism. This is what we're going to get into probably today. We're going to get into it at the latest next week, and that is the chapter more about alcoholism. And we're going to examine for the final time in the book the depths and insights of step one, step one. Uh, as we understand it. Then a chapter addressed to the agnostic. That's chapter four, we agnostics. Notice it doesn't say you agnostics. Notice it doesn't say those agnostics. It says we agnostics because Bill and the boys put themselves in the shoes of the agnostic when the chapter was written. And it says we agnostics, knowing that most of us are going to come in with a great deal of confusion around this issue of God. And so as such, he wrote the chapter, We Agnostics. These little subtleties, I'm hoping by pointing them out to you, will enhance and, and increase the value of what you're reading and for you to see it as divinely inspired. It's very, very subtle. But these things are very key to the understanding of divine intervention. Many who were once in this class are now among our members. Surprisingly enough, we find such convictions no great obstacle to a spiritual experience. Notice it says that, and it says it repeatedly throughout the book. You don't have to be a believer. Hang on. 
You don't have to be an atheist. You don't have to be an agnostic. You don't have to be a member of any particular religion. All you have to be is willing, willing, you don't have to believe, willing to believe that there's a power greater than yourself. Why do I repeat that so often? Because it is one of the most important pieces of information that gets overlooked habitually in our program. We spend an awful lot of time on food plans and we should do that. That's important work. You know, we're not AA and NA where you just simply abstain from alcohol, you abstain from narcotics. So it's very clear cut, very black and very white. But my sponsor lives in Los Angeles. He can eat cheese, he can eat grape nuts, he can eat uh, diet, uh, diet pop with the sweetener in there. I can't. I can't. So many of us have different, you know, different nutritional needs, different things that get us crazy, get us with sugar. Further on, clear-cut directions are given showing how we recovered, not why we recovered or where we recovered or when we recovered. It shows us how we recovered. And also, I want you to take note for yourself and if you're sponsoring for your sponsees, that the word recovered is in the past tense because one of the questions that comes up on vision meetings habitually comes up. It'll come up once a week for sure. One, every, every two weeks, certain. What is the difference between recovered and recovering? Recovering is working toward the spiritual awakening or the spiritual experience, which I've never had. I've had a spiritual awakening, which is slower in developing. And it's not as sudden and profound as what Bill had, but it says how we recovered. Notice it doesn't say cured, but it says recovered. What is the definition of recovered? A person who has a spiritual awakening and as such has, is more benign, more neutral to any ideas of using or doing their compulsive eating or compulsive food behaviors. Let's cover the food behaviors for just a minute here because I don't believe I'm being responsible if I don't if I don't talk about this at least every other week because it's vital. I am a compulsive overeater. Okay? I ate way too much food. And if I don't work the steps, I will continue to eat too much food. And I have eaten railroad cars full of Oreo cookies to kill the guilt, shame, and remorse of eating railroad cars full of Oreo cookies. I ate to cover the shame of eating, if that makes any sense. However, there are people listening right now, and there are people that may hear this on the podcast that are not that kind of compulsive overeater. They've never been significantly overweight in their life. And do they belong here? Yes, let's, let's give them the honor of mentioning some of these things. There are people who are anorexic. They get a high, like I get a high from a, a Butterfinger bar. They get a high from not eating. It gets them crazy, it gets them high. They get that what Dr. Silkworth would call the effect. What is that effect? The effect is the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating the fruit, or in their case, not eating the fruit. They are anorexic, and so they will starve themselves. There are also people listening here that are bulimic, and bulimia will take different forms. And sometimes people will 
practice more than one form of bulimia even at the same time. Here are three of the forms of bulimia, and there may be others, but there, these are the three most prevalent forms of bulimia. Number one, regurgitation bulimia. They eat massive quantities of food and induce vomiting or regurgitation and vomit the food up. That is the most common prevalent form of bulimia. So at the beginning of the OA literature, when you see what is the definition of abstinence, see, people talk about what's your abstinence, what's your abstinence. Everybody has the same abstinence. It's the food plan that they're really asking about. It's not, everybody has the same abstinence. Here's abstinence as defined by OA. It is abstaining from compulsive overeating and compulsive food behaviors while working toward, <clears throat> by, while being at or working toward a healthy body weight. That's the definition of abstinence. But my food plan is different from this person's food plan or that person's food plan. I hope you understand the difference. Abstinence is the same for everybody. Food plan is different for just about everybody. Okay. Regurgitation is the co most common form of bulimia. There's also some people who practice laxative bulimia. They will eat massive quantities of food and through their obtaining laxatives, they will take these laxatives and purge the food out through their digestive system. And these are laxative bulimia, bulimics and they can wreak havoc, they do wreak havoc on their bowels and on their digestive systems. Now there's another form of bulimia that is called exercise bulimia. And these are people, and I have a friend of mine who lives in Colorado who was one of these, and she talks about it on vision all the time. She would eat massive quantities of food, and then she would go to the gym for six, seven, eight hours a day to work off this food. And she wreaked havoc, and others like her, not just her, on their muscular system, on their skeletal system, on their bodies. They're just wreaking havoc on their systems by this exercise bulimia. So these are behaviors, these are compulsive eating behaviors that like my overeating qualify a person for this program. They qualify a person for the program because they absolutely fall under the category of compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors. So let's always keep in mind that even though we are all in the same program, we're not all the same. We're not all the same. Each individual in, his person, in the personal stories describes in his own language and from his own point of view, the way he established his relationship with God. And we're gonna find that just like the model, the varieties of religious experience by William James, in our 42 stories, we're going to see how each one of these 42 people, once the catastrophe of alcoholism wreaked havoc on their lives, how they resurrected by establishing a relationship with their creator. 
Sometimes it was a religious deity, sometimes it wasn't. And whatever that is for you, that is okay. It doesn't, you don't have to fit in with my food plan and you don't have to fit in with how I see God. And that's one of the most beautiful things about the program. You do not have to fit in to my idea of what God is and what God isn't. And I don't have to fit in to yours, but can we both trudge the road of happy destiny together? You bet we can, and we do when we work the steps. These give a fair cross-section of our membership and a clear-cut idea of what has actually happened in their lives. And they're going to give you that account by telling you their story of what happened in their lives. We hope no one will consider these self-revealing accounts in bad taste. Our hope is that many alcoholic men and women desperately in need will see these pages and we believe that it is only by fully disclosing ourselves and our problems that they will be persuaded to say, yes, I am one of them too. I must have this thing. And one of the things that I have seen over and over and over again is you you, you just look at a new person and you don't always know, you're not always sure that they're gonna get it. And then, then something happens and this is what I see happen. The shortest distance between two people is a straight laugh. You get them laughing because they can relate to your experience and you get their head going like this and you got them. Because once you get their head going like this, and they can relate, they understand where you're coming from. Until that happens, very little can take place. And what will eventually happen is that through watching the people around them, watching you, watching the people around them, Little by little by little by little, we begin to take actions which we do not yet believe in, but out of desperation and sheer, sheer desperation and pain, we begin to take these actions of putting the food down, getting a sponsor, working on our higher power, doing step four, all of a sudden through action, this inertia starts to set in. Inertia is bodies in motion tend to stay in motion, bodies at rest tend to, tend to stay at rest unless acted upon by an outside force. And what is that outside force, that momentum? The spiritual awakening as the result of the step. We now become more willing, but when we wait for that willingness to hit us so that we will do the action after willing, many of us will die before that ever occurs. So I had to start taking action after action after action. And that action produced the willingness. That is very, very important. Now, we're gonna look in the next 15, 20 minutes here at some things that are pursuant to chapter three. In 1930, there was an alcoholic man, and his name was Richard Peabody, just like the cartoon, uh, Sherman and Peabody. That's how I remember it all the time. 
when I was a kid, I used to watch Sherman and Peabody. But anyway, his name was Richard Peabody. And he wrote a book called The Common Sense of Drinking. Now, the common sense of drinking missed the mark on a lot of things. I, I won't go into a critique of it. I'll just give you some highlights. First of all, Richard Peabody believed that alcoholism was more a product of emotional instability than it was anything else. And he also thought that it was the product of bad parenting. He thought that it was environmental. He believed that if the alcoholic could gain uh, economic freedom, if the alcoholic could be uh, uh, psychologically quieted, that, that this would cure alcoholism. And there were many, many things that Peabody was way off base on. But so important was the work by Peabody. And by the way, before I say another word, I also want to tell you something. Richard Peabody died in 1936 of his own alcoholism. There was help right there. It was just getting started. But he, he, didn't, he didn't cross the threshold of a spiritual solution to it. He never got that. He never got to it. And he died of his own alcoholism. But there were three major truths about alcoholism that Peabody was right on. So vital was the book, The Common Sense of Drinking by Richard Peabody. So vital was this book that Bill Wilson's copy of The Common Sense of Drinking by Richard Peabody, his copy of the book is in the AA archives as we sit here today. So the common sense of drinking gave us three factors of alcoholism. The characteristics of alcoholism are the physical allergy and the mental twist. It is a two-fold illness. You'll hear people say it's a three-fold illness and a 22-fold. It's a two-fold illness. Mental twist, physical allergy. That's what, if you don't have those things, both of them, you're not an alcoholic. If you don't have both of those things for food, you're probably not a compulsive overeater. You're not a drug addict or a gambler or whatever that is. Hold on. Okay. But he gave us three characteristics of alcoholism that are right on. They are spot on. What are they? Number one, it is a permanent condition. It is a permanent condition. It never goes away. Number two, it is progressive. What does that mean? It means that the disease over time gets worse and worse and worse. And number three, it is fatal. Now the little other fact that I want to point out as we begin chapter three, and we only have 15 minutes left before we go to Q&A. The, the chapter more about alcoholism is not a chapter about men who were drunk and couldn't get sober. As you would think, reading a book like this, you would think that this would be stories about men who were drunk and they could not get sober, right? Wrong. These are stories about men who were sober, and made decisions based on erroneous information that we're going to examine to pick up a drink in search of relief from the untenable, unbearable pain of not drinking. 
So it is not a chapter about people who were drunk and couldn't get sober. It is about sober people who had been told in most cases, not all, that they were alcoholics and shouldn't drink. And they picked up a drink anyway because the pain of not drinking was too much for them to bear. And we're also gonna see that not in not all cases is that emotion negative. In one of the cases, we're gonna find that the guy was doing fantastic. And I have done a lot of eating when things went my way. I have done a lot of eating in celebration of things that went my way. And I bet you have too. If you're a compulsive overeater like me, you have done a lot of eating in the face of good fortune. So that is what we're gonna get into. Let's crack open page 30 and let's crack it open for the 18 minutes or so, or not 18, but the 13 minutes that we have left. And we're only probably gonna get to the very first paragraph. But this first paragraph of chapter three is so vital, so vital, that if I don't absorb this information, I will not recover. Why won't I recover? I won't see the need of doing the rest of the steps. You see, your ability to absorb the information in the doctor's opinion is equal to your ability of, of absorbing this information on page 30, because unless you accept that you are a compulsive overeater and different from every Tom, Dick, and Harry out there, you will not take this seriously. Let's take a look at what it says here. The first thing I'm going to notice is the chapter title, More About Alcoholism. The original working title was More Truth About Alcoholism. And when the Ackland groups started getting their copies in the mail, they said that the fact that you have more truth about alcoholism makes it seem like we are experts on alcoholism, and indeed we are not. There's a difference between being an expert on being an alcoholic and being an expert on alcoholism, which we are not. I am an expert on being a compulsive overeater. I've been one for 66 years of life. Nobody knows more about eating peanut butter and jelly on a back in the middle of the night than me. Nobody. But the fact of the matter is we are all experts at these things, but we are not experts in nutrition. Some of us order on it because we have so many damn books and pamphlets and things that we've collected over the years on calorie count and nutrition and everything like this. Oddly enough, many of us could write books on these things. And I wouldn't doubt that of the many, many people that are on the line, maybe some of you are nutritionists. I couldn't tell you. But what they didn't want was that word truth in the title. And Bill said, you know, I'm going to go with that. I'm not going to fight you on that. And so the title of the chapter became more about alcoholism. Let's look at, most of us have been unwilling to admit, I'm on page 30, first paragraph. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. Some of us, we may be a heavy eater, we may have gotten in trouble with food, we may have this or we may have that. But the admission, now the steps are divided into four sections, admission, submission, restitution, and reconstruction. Admission is step one only. Admission is step one. Submission is two through seven. You are submitting 
to that power greater than yourself. Restitution is eight and nine, and reconstruction is 10, 11, and 12. But admission is only step number one, admission. Most of us have been unwilling to admit, there's that word, we were real alcoholics. I am a real compulsive overeater. I'm not the fake kind, I'm not the generic kind, I'm not the store brand, I am a real compulsive overeater. No person likes to think he is bodily, the allergy, mentally, the twist, different from his fellows. Now in January, I want you to, the last week of December after Christmas, and the first week of January, I want you to pay attention to the advertisements that you're going to see on gyms and diets and weight loss. And what are they gonna to try to tell you? Join our gym, join our weight loss center. You'll be able to eat pizza just like everybody else. You'll be able to eat ice cream just like everybody else. And that you're gonna go back and eat just the way everybody else does. Why did they sell you on there? Because the psychiatrists and the motivational psychologists that they consult tell them that that's what we most want. None of us have a desire in this world more at points in our life than to be able to eat like a normal person. But what we don't understand is the normal person is highly benign to food. They're highly benign. They really don't give a crap. They really, really don't care. And that's what we don't see because we assume that because food does something for us, it does it for everybody. We learn it does not. It does not. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. How many times have I tried to prove that I could eat like other people? I can't even begin to count them. That's how many times that has occurred in my life. I try to prove I can eat like other people. And again, when you get to December 26th, through about the middle of January, end of January, every commercial that you're gonna see, every, every ad that you're gonna see online is gonna be weight loss, gyms, drugs to take, treatment centers, all that stuff. And they're gonna tell you that if you come to our place, you can eat pizza just like everybody else. What they don't tell you is that the pizza is about this big, and if you could eat a pizza that big, you wouldn't be in Overeaters Anonymous because eating a piece of pizza even this big is gonna, is gonna trigger my physical allergy. It's gonna make it so that I can't control the amount I eat. It's impossible. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker control and enjoy. When I controlled my food, I couldn't enjoy my food. When I enjoyed my food, I couldn't control my food. So in the sentence, he uses the word and, the conjunction and, control and enjoy. Are these things possible at the same time for me? No. No, they're not possible at the same time. When I Eat like there's no tomorrow. And, and in my mind, I have an expression. Here's the expression. I'll let you in on my innermost thinking. 
I would look at a buffet table or I would look at something and I'd say, F it, tonight we ride. And when I say F it, tonight we ride, my hand always went like this. I would always wave, ah, screw it. That meant today I'm gonna eat everything I wanna eat and I don't give a damn who likes it or who doesn't like it. I'm gonna just do what I'm gonna do. Now, if I didn't say that and I said, you know, I'm gonna be a good boy today. I'm gonna be a good boy as opposed to a bad boy. And I tried to control my eating, only eating a little here, a little there, I couldn't enjoy it because I would eat little quantities of allergic, of allergy producing food. When I took a little appetizer egg roll off the tray at a bar mitzvah, or I took a little one of those little pizza rolls or something like that, I would be raging inside. I didn't know it was because of a physical allergy. And the minute I could get away from these people, I would go to a convenience store or a restaurant or a drive-through on the way home from there and I would eat my flipping head off. But while they were, maybe there was somebody, there was always, not always, there was a lot of cops on the beat. And when I say cop on the beat, there was usually somebody who would just ream the daylights out of me if they caught me eating, and they would ream me because I had gained so much weight since the last time they saw me. And I often didn't want to piss these people off. I didn't want to get them antagonized. I didn't want to get them started. So in front of certain people, I was afraid to eat and I had to wait till I got away from them. And that was what happened. The and what is an obsession? An obsession is a thought which pushes aside all thought to the contrary all thought to the contrary. The great obsession of every abnormal drinker and this persistence of this illusion. What is an illusion? It is something that appears real, but is not. It appears real, but it's really not. It's like a mirage in the desert. Is astonishing. Many pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. I have a friend of mine, he lives in Santa Monica, California. He's a, he's a bit of a nut, but that's okay. It doesn't make him a bad guy. He's a bit of a nutcase. And he says, if you want to see somebody who pursued this disease to the gates of insanity or death, call Harlan. He gives out my phone number. And I get calls from people that say, tell me about your pursuing the disease to the gates of insanity or death. And I'll tell him, you know, whatever. But the bottom line is, in this first paragraph, what we're seeing is that inner desire to be like other people. And what we're going to learn together, what we're going to walk through together in the next couple of weeks in this chapter, we're going to take great time in this chapter. This is a chapter where we're going to go into very, very uh, pedantic detail. And we're gonna go into that detail because we're gonna point out not only the devastation of the illness, we're gonna point out the progressive nature of the illness. And we're gonna point out, at least in one of the stories, the fatal nature of the illness. And so this chapter is one where we're going to look at step number one. And the beginning of step number one is we admitted we were powerless over food. And when we admit that we're powerless over food, 
we have to also admit, we have to come to the conclusion of the mind that we are the same as each other, but different from other people. That there's no way, no matter how long you've been in recovery, no matter how beautiful you are, or how not beautiful you are, or how old you are, or how young you are, or how black you are, or how white you are, there is no way you are going to return to a place of normality without a spiritual awakening. But you will never be normal when it comes to this. You will have to continue working very hard at your recovery. And the longer you're in recovery, the harder you're gonna have to work. Why? Because it is a progressive disease. And one of the things I want to leave you with today is one of the big mistakes we make as members of OA. We stop working harder and harder and harder at recovery. We get to a place of complacency, but you have to remember that every single day that you wake up, you're lucky enough to wake up, three things happened. You got older, which means your body and your mind are less able to fend off the effects of this disease. Number two, the disease got worse. Every day that you're lucky enough to wake up and be alive, your disease got worse. And number three, things are changing. And as things change, things are going to happen that are going to scare you, make you angry, make you happy, make you jealous. No matter what that emotion is, the fact that things are changing. Six months ago, let's see a show of hands. Six months ago, how many people here knew what the hell Corona or COVID-19 even was? Not me, never heard of such a thing in my life. Well, look at the world now. Look at the world now. What do you think you'd have gotten in Las Vegas if you'd have made a bet in Las Vegas? You know what, I bet. I bet that there's no baseball played uh, until July 24th of this year. And, and they still, we don't know. What do, you think, what do you think the odds would have been that you'd have gotten? You'd be a zillionaire now. You'd be a zillionaire. They'd have given you odd, whatever odds you want. That there'd be no NBA championship this year, no NHL championship. What do you think the odds would have been? Instead of those hotels being named whatever they're named in Las Vegas, they'd have your name on them. That's, that's how rich you'd be. But yet that's reality. That is the reality of the situation. So we're going to meet next week at the same time, same, same bat time, same bat channel. And what we're going to see in the weeks to come is we're going to examine this chapter and hopefully unlock some information in it that maybe you've never really looked at before. And we're going to make the chapter come alive in a way that I hope will be very, very helpful. So uh, we're going to open it up for questions and answers as soon as I write down that 